The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. But this system uh, really just amounts to a lot of unequal treatment without a valid basis. Uh, the delayed removal of violating content is a second major concern, and the idea that this content is kept up on the platform during the period of maximum virality in the uh, initial hours and days after it is posted and that it can travel you know, all the way across the world before uh, this system catches up to it and then where the content is harmful, that creates a great concern. I'm Quinta Jurassic, Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, December 12th, 2022. Today, we're bringing you an episode of Arbiters of Truth, our series on the online information ecosystem. When Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen shared a trove of internal company documents with the Wall Street Journal in 2021, some of the most dramatic revelations concerned the company's use of a so-called cross-check system that, according to the journal, essentially exempted certain high-profile users from the platform's typical rules. After the journal published its report, Facebook, which has since changed its name to Meta, asked the platform's independent oversight board to weigh in on the program. And now, a year later, the board has finally released its opinion. To discuss, Lawfare Senior Editor Alan Rosenstein and I sat down with Suzanne Nossel, a member of the oversight board and the CEO of Pan America. Suzanne talked us through the board's findings its criticisms of the cross-check program, and its recommendations for Meta going forward. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 12th. A member of Meta's oversight board discusses the board's new decision. So let's start at the very, very beginning. Some listeners are likely already familiar with the Meta oversight board, and we've covered it a fair amount at Lawfare. But for others, I think the idea of an independent oversight board that's been stood up to monitor the content moderation decisions of a private social media company, that whole idea might seem surprising or or novel. So can you explain just what the Meta Oversight Board is and what your role on it is in particular? Sure. So the board was created nearly two years ago with the idea that sensitive determinations about content moderation should not be ideally in the hands of government, but should also not be solely in the hands of Silicon Valley executives. I think part of it was that, honestly, Facebook and their leadership wanted out of kind of holding the bag on some of these very sensitive determinations and being accountable for line drawing in an arena where there are no clear rules, it's terra incognita, you have to decide, you know, what the parameters, what should be permissible on the platform. And they were coming under a lot of fire for doing that. And so the idea was floated to create a body comprised of human rights lawyers, journalists, experts of various kinds and with global representation that would take on the role of reviewing some of the most sensitive content determinations and 
drawing on human rights law, international human rights law, as a source to determine how those content decisions should be made. And so the board was constituted. Uh, we now have 23 members. It's globally representative. Uh, it's a, people from a wide variety of backgrounds, law professors, uh, former editors, activists, uh, judges who come together and we, for the most part, hear cases, individual determinations about a piece of content that either was removed from Meta's platforms or that remained up on Meta's platforms despite being contested. And we render decisions about whether those determinations were correct. And in some cases, we uphold what Meta has done. In some cases, we reverse. We also take on policy questions at Meta's request. And that was the genesis of this cross-check policy advisory opinion. So before we go more into the the cross-check opinion, which I think is is really rich and there's a lot to talk about, I want to ask a, a bit of a meta question, no pun intended, which is, why are you talking to us? And and what I mean by that is that, you know, the oversight board presents itself as kind of a, a court-like judicial style body, but judges don't typically come on podcasts to discuss their rulings after the fact. And if they did so, people like me and like Alan would probably criticize them sharply for, for doing so. So I'm just curious how you understand your role in talking to us right now. Yeah, sure. Look, I don't think we see ourselves as a quasi-judicial body. Some of what we do is similar to an adjudication. We're trying to apply a set of rules to review a decision and articulate why that decision has been rendered correctly or not. But we also have a kind of public accountability role. You know, for me, I'm the CEO of PEN America, and in deciding to join the Oversight Board, I felt that the company was insufficiently accountable to users, that it was lacking in transparency, and that the board had an opportunity to kind of pull back the curtain and make the workings of these labyrinthine systems of content moderation uh, more accessible, more understandable, uh, that we could also engage with stakeholders. We do things like we invite public comments, we do stakeholder workshops. And so we really see part of our role as to help explicate these issues for a public audience. And so a podcast is part of that. So let's let's get into that explicating role. So can you just, you know, before we get into the, the opinion itself, can you just provide an overview of what the Facebook cross-check system is? And maybe in, in particular, maybe we can use as an example, the case of uh, Neymar, the Brazilian soccer star. Um, which I think shows both how the system is supposed to work and maybe some of its pitfalls, intended or otherwise. Yeah, sure. So they describe the system as one that is intended to prevent mistakes, mistaken removals of content, that content that is flagged as violating uh, meta policy, but that upon further review may be found not to have uh, constituted such a violation. And so the cross-check program sort of aims to address this by providing additional layers of human review to certain posts that are initially flagged as breaking the rules. And so they call it kind of a secondary review system. There's another level of review that happens by virtue of cross-check. And when cross-check is implicated, such as in the Neymar case, uh, the Brazilian soccer star, who uh, you know, seems to be at the height of his uh, athletic powers right now, uh, but he posted a piece of non-consensual nudity on the platform. And that is one of the most kind of high severity forms of content that's impermissible on Meta, where there's a recognition that the posting of such content can cause kind of immediate and irreparable harm. And the platform sort of touts itself as being highly sensitive to that, have really strong systems in place to prevent that. But Neymar posted this content and it remained on the platform, I think, for almost 24 hours. It was uh, seen uh, many tens of millions of times all over the world before it was finally taken down. And that's an illustration of how the cross-check system works, which is that 
when content that is posted by someone who is on the cross-check list is flagged for violating a policy, it's not taken down immediately, which is what would happen if content by an ordinary user were similarly flagged, but rather it's kind of funneled into the system with several additional layers of review. And not until it's gone through all of those layers of review uh, is it removed uh, typically. And so that's what you saw happen in the Neymar case. And it's a powerful illustration of what can go wrong when this mechanism of cross-check allows content to remain on the platform for longer than it ordinarily would. So a lot of times issues come before the board because they're raised by users through a a sort of submissions process. Um, In this case, as you say, it's an advisory opinion, and there's a bit of a dramatic backstory to how you all came to look at this issue of the cross-check system. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. You know, the existence of cross-check had not attracted a lot of attention, and it did come up, though, in the board's review of Facebook's decision to kick Donald Trump off of the platform. In the course of rendering that decision, Meta did not mention uh, that cross-check existed, but in a question that the board asked, Meta came back and referenced that they had a system of this nature, and the board asked some questions about the system. Uh, The answers were rather cursory. It came off as a system that was uh, used in a very limited way. And then in September of 2021, the Wall Street Journal revealed the Frances Hogan sort of disclosures about Facebook. Uh, She's the famous Facebook whistleblower. And they reported that CrossCheck exempted Meta's most powerful users from normal content moderation processes. And Haugen specifically said that the company had lied repeatedly to the board uh, in the course of the Trump decision uh, about the operations and the scope of cross-check. And of course, you know, for us, that was deeply upsetting. You know, we operate in a good faith context. We really cannot carry out our work if Meta is not forthright with us, if they try to mislead us. And so to have that out there you know, triggered for us uh, a sense of alarm about kind of what are we doing here if the company, uh, you know, is not owning up uh, and answering our questions forthrightly. And so we held a meeting with Meta uh, and expressed those concerns. We also expressed them publicly. And after that, the company turned to us and asked us to complete this policy advisory opinion. So I think that the this issue of of Meta misleading you leads to some kind of interesting questions about the role of the board and the way I was getting to earlier, because uh, you you were just saying that, you know, you don't understand yourselves as a judicial body. So that may be your response to this, but I do want to pull out that comparison a little more. You know, Alan and I spent a lot of time writing about courts. If the Justice Department misled a federal court, a judge could respond by sanctioning the attorney in question, ruling against the government substantively, you know, that there's a kind of an independent authority as a separate branch of government to push back. In a situation like this one where you kind of find out that Meta has been misleading you, does the board have any comparable power or is it always going to be operating at sort of a comparative disadvantage with the company itself? Well, it really can't be compared to a court, you know, in the American sense where the authority of the court is enshrined in the Constitution and derives from the Constitution. Our authority derives from Meta. You know, let's face it, they created the board. It kind of operates at their pleasure. We have some protections for our independence, the independence of our budget, you know, some ability to control the selection of new board members when members of the board step down. And then, you know, quite separate administrations where our deliberations are protected. So there are safeguards in place, but we also operate we could not carry out our work without the cooperation of Meta. They provide us with the cases when we have questions, you know, we turn to them, we have to, to get the facts that we need. And so it's an unusual arrangement. It's sui generis. You know, I would say in a case like that, 
you know, one of our recourses is to speak out publicly. You know, Beta created this board and has invested in it for a reason. And if the board turns around and says that the company is crippling our ability to function, you know, I think that's that's harmful. And so I think that is one constraint in terms of how they deal with us. I think that interacts interestingly with the role of the journal here. I mean, you were you were saying, of course, you come into this um, in your role at at Penn. There's you're sort of thinking of this of the board as a, a transparency measure as well. I don't know of other board decisions. Maybe I'm just not thinking of them that sort of uh, relied quite so heavily on press reporting about Meta's internal operations. But it strikes me that there's kind of a an interesting synergy here with uh, the Haugen documents, uh, the journals reporting on them, and then you all kind of picking up that thread and pulling. Uh, so I'm curious, sort of, how you see the board's role in that broader kind of civil society journalistic ecosystem of pushing for transparency on the part of social media companies like Meta? I think where the press raises a concern about some aspect of the company's operation, which absolutely happened in the case of the Hagen disclosures, the recourse on the part of Meta may be to turn to the board. I mean, that's what they did. You know, they kind of had egg on their face uh, for having been accused of misleading the board and operating a system that was unaccountable, non-transparent, gave privileges to certain users. And then they turned to the board and said, okay, you know, we recognize these critiques. You know, what should we do with the system? How do we fix it? And, you know, as a board, we took that opportunity Seriously, and we regarded it as an important aspect of the company's operation, something that was uh, disturbing for many users to recognize it was this two-tiered system that was outside of public view that no one knew about or understood. And we were given the opportunity to look under the hood, not entirely, but uh, to a far greater degree than other journalists or civil society organizations had been able to access. And so we felt, you know, we have to seize that opportunity. We, while our powers are limited, we have some powers that go beyond what anyone else really has. And we have to take advantage of them, you know, doing so on our own behalf, but also on behalf of the base of users of these platforms who have rights that should not be abrogated. So let's get into the the decision. And before we get into the details, can you give us a high-level overview of what the board found with respect to the cross-check system and also what recommendations the board made to Meta? You know, essentially, I would say we found this system was highly problematic in manifold ways, that uh, it raised serious concerns for us as a matter of international human rights law and as a matter of Meta's own stated uh, community guidelines, the principles by which the company purports to operate, which include voice and dignity and safety. And so that, you know, there really were four key elements to our critique. Uh, the first is the unequal treatment of users, that essentially what Crosstech does is grant certain users great, far greater protection for their expression than others enjoy. And you know, that goes back to the way that Neymar's post uh, stayed up on the platform far longer than it otherwise would have. There are also policies that are applicable for those who are on the cross-check list that are not available to ordinary users, things like the newsworthiness uh, exception. And particularly given the lack of transparent criteria for inclusion in the cross-check list, that for us is a real concern. We think it it may be justifiable to have separate kinds of rules. That's something uh, that one can debate. We can see some rationale for that, even from a human rights perspective, if it's users whose content may be of particular value, uh, that there would be an extra layer of protection to make sure it's not taken down unnecessarily or mistakenly, but this system uh, really just amounts to a lot of unequal treatment without a valid basis. Uh, The delayed removal of violating content was a second major concern and the idea that this content is kept up on the platform during the period of maximum virality in the uh, initial 
hours and days after it is posted and that it can travel you know, all the way across the world before uh, this system catches up to it and then where the content is harmful, that creates a grave concern. We also uh, called out the company's failure to track core metrics about whether the system is achieving the end goals that it states as, as the rationale for it. It doesn't seem to measure those questions. The meta would not provide us with the kind of information that we really needed to determine whether the system is, is effective in doing what it's supposed to. Uh, and then finally, just an utter lack of transparency about how Crosscheck works, who's in the system, you know, what privileges they get, how one might uh, become part of the system. If you had a justification as to why your content warranted higher protection, there's no mechanism to bring that forward. And so it's a pretty comprehensive critique. And we lay out a whole series of recommendations about how we think that a mistake prevention system aimed to address the problem of what they call false positives, content that is uh, mistakenly taken down from the platform, how that might work in a way that's consistent with Facebook's stated values and with international human rights law. And it would be a system that's drastically different from the operation of Crosscheck today. So there, there's a, a lot of follow-ups that I know Quentin and I have. And, and I guess I'll start by asking, so... In your response and also in the opinion, a lot of time is spent on this issue of unequal treatment of users. But there's also, and I was hoping you could explain more, seems to be a part of Crosscheck that's about the unequal treatment of types of content. And I, I was hoping you could sort of explain why that's part of Crosscheck and whether the board found that as concerning as the part that is about treating different users differently. Well, there's two streams within Crosscheck. The first is what's known as an entity-based system. And so basically the, the operation of that system depends on who the user is, who actually puts up the post. And certain users, no matter what they post, are eligible and kind of funneled through that system. Uh, there's a second system that Meta adopted actually subsequent to the public revelations of the operation of Crosscheck that is called general secondary review. And that's not entity-based. That kind of, at least in theory, is of universal application. And it's based not on who does the post, but on the nature of the post. And it's sort of purportedly flags types of content where false positives are likely and commonplace and affords them an extra measure of review to try to tamp down sort of the rate and the level of false positives. And so I'd say most of our attention focused on the entity-based system. That really seems like the piece of this that's most fundamental to Meta's motivations for maintaining such a system, uh, to the business considerations that have driven the existence of Crosscheck. It's a more developed system, but we also do flag a series of concerns with the general secondary review, so the other kind of content-based piece. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me 
their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. I was wondering if you could talk more about the the unequal treatment aspect of the critique, because one of the things that I think was really important about your analysis is that it's not just, you know, unequal treatment in terms of say, pick a given country, you know, like within Brazil, Neymar has access to this cross-check system and a, a random Brazilian Facebook or Instagram user does not. There's also a concern about unequal treatment across the globe in terms of where cross-checks resources are centered geographically and what that means in terms of nationality, language, etc. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, Sure. Look, we had a lot of discussion about whether and to what degree a multi-tiered system could be justified. You know, is this something more like an airline that has different classes of service? And if you're a top customer, you know, you're given a better meal and uh, hand towels and the like. And, you know, that's perfectly acceptable. Or is this more like the highways where everyone has to obey the same rules of the road and anybody can be pulled over and ticketed. And so when 
Meta first an answered our questions about the system. They focused on kind of the noble users like journalists and civic leaders, uh, you know, who would be afforded this access to extra layers of review for their content to protect against unwarranted removals, you know, in order to safeguard their voice and ensure that they their content wasn't unnecessarily silenced or suppressed. But when we got into the guts of the system, we found, you know, it really wasn't structured to privilege the content that was of particular value from a human rights perspective, but rather all of Meta's business partners were eligible for the system based on how much revenue they spent with the company. All political leaders all over the globe are automatically put into the system. And that one of the main motivations for the system was to protect against what the company calls escalation risk. So the risk of honestly, a user, a high profile user getting upset that their content was removed and bringing their complaint right to the highest levels of the company and taking up the time of senior officials to have to uh, dig into it and potentially apologize and cause reputational risk to the company. And there was a, a major element of why this whole system was developed was to protect against that. And uh, Katie Harbath, who's a former Meta employee, sort of told a story uh, about how the system originated, that President Obama, I think when he was first running for office, his account was taken down. And it was because somebody had put uh, the word dick on a list of terms that couldn't be said on Facebook. And he had a posting where he said Moby Dick was one of his favorite books. And that automatically triggered uh, the takedown of his account. And so they sort of realized, look, we need a system that's going to protect against that. And I think that is understandable. But the system that they designed you know, went far, far uh, beyond that sort of scenario and just has you know, swept up an enormous amount of content uh, for, you know, what amounts to a, a level of impunity. And it cre can create kind of a moral hazard, because if you know that you, your content's not going to be taken down, or it's going to be taken down more slowly, you know, you could do some very damaging things, uh, taking advantage of that leeway. And then just to get to your second point about inequities in the system, you know, absolutely. The West United States, uh, North America is heavily overrepresented in the list of people eligible for secondary review. In terms of the expertise of the teams that do the review, they don't always have the language skills. Uh, they rely for languages that are not as widespread on automated tools to figure out what is a slur, for example, and we raised a serious concern that as applied, the system kind of reinforces power disparities and disadvantages uh, those who already kind of operate on the platform, uh, you know, from a, a basis of, of lacking some of the benefits that other users enjoy. Let me build off this point about disparities across regions to kind of maybe talk about something more broad than that. I mean, I, I do think it is it is well understood that although, you know, Facebook maybe is thought of as an American platform, especially because that's where it started. It's it's not just, you know, in terms of the where, where the billion users are. Um, and at the same time, I think it's well known that that Facebook and Meta have underinvested in, for example, as you put it, these language skills in other countries. But might this be an interesting example of Facebook Underinvesting more generally, uh, you know, you you note, or I should say, the the opinion notes that a lot of the reason that cross-checked content actually stays up as long as it does is because the company, and here I'm, I'm quoting from the report at paragraph 23, has not invested the resources needed. And so, you know, is this whole issue really just a story about insufficient human moderation? And and if so, is it the board's position that really this is where Facebook? needs to go? Or, or do we all kind of understand that human moderation will never be sufficient just given the magnitude and, and that, you know, there will inevitably have to be some level of automation with the degree of error that that always inevitably brings? 
Yeah, I think it's a bit of both, uh, to be honest. I think uh, they have underinvested in this system, and we saw that through the fact that they report a persistent backlog in the content that goes through this channel. They're not able to keep up with the volume. And so there's a default, you know, in the case of the entity-based system, the default is that content remains up uh, unless and until one of these levels of adjudication calls for it to be taken down. In the case of general secondary review, the content-based system, after a three-day time period, it times out of that queue and it's taken down by default. And there is persistently a lot of content that never you know, really makes it through the system due to a lack of human moderation resources. So that is a problem. But I think on the other hand, realistically, with the volume at stake on platforms as massive as Facebook and Instagram, there probably never will be sufficient human moderation to meet the demand. And so I think it's a question of a balance of pointing out some areas where they really need to invest further, but also trying to come up with parameters and solutions that can work for a system of this size where the scale of the moderation challenge is is never going to be fully met. Let me also ask you a question about, I think, what I thought was one of the more interesting parts of the opinion or one of the most interesting parts of an opinion that is interesting throughout, which is the tension that the board recognizes between Meta's role as a platform, as a public commons of sorts, and also as a business. Because the board does recognize and says quite explicitly that business interests should be a legitimate consideration for Meta to take into account. But at the same time, Meta also has these human rights considerations. And and at some point, there's a great sentence about that Meta should potentially just be honest about what it's doing. And if it's going to do business interests first, it should just say that. Um, so this is this is paragraph 89. And I'll just read it because I think it's, it's a great understated sentence. But I think if you read between the lines, you can tell some annoyance behind it, perhaps. While the board understands that Meta is a business and should be able to design policies that meet business concerns, these same policies should not be characterized as serving human rights risk mitigation measures if they do not meet that objective. And so, you know, is is part of the answer for Meta just to be more transparent and to say, look, we're a business and we're not going to pretend that what we're doing is designed for much other than to not annoy our most profitable content creators and not make headaches for our, you know, CEO, which, you know, might not be the answer we want to hear, but might be the most honest answer. Yeah. I mean, I think for us as a board, we really value the forthrightness from the company, you know, when it feels like they're telling us it like it is. And even if that's not pretty or doesn't cast things in the most favorable light, it allows us to understand you know, what we're dealing with. And so started to hear that this system was about protecting the rights of, and the ability of journalists to report from conflict zones or for community leaders to raise awareness of hate or violence. Yeah, you know, that's a small piece of it. But when we dug into the guts of it, you know, that really wasn't the motivation here. And so I think what you're hearing in the opinion is sort of a, a call for greater honesty and a a more direct dialogue with the board kind of from the beginning so that we don't have to parse through quite as much to really understand how these systems work. So, I mean, to some extent, every major technology company faces this problem of the entanglement of business with human rights concerns. I mean, to point to another technology platform that has been in the news recently, Twitter has been really struggling with this uh, in terms of its efforts to sort of establish itself in the Indian market, um, given that the Indian government under the BJP has been really pushing that platform to take things down. We'll see what happens with that under uh, Elon Musk's leadership. So on that, in that sense, Meta is sort of is not certainly not alone here. On the other hand, I think it's also true that, you know, Meta is often, it feels like to me, singled out in tech reporting as having a particularly close relationship between its kind of internal policy and uh, external politicking or, or lobbying arms. And you certainly see that in 
the, what the Wall Street Journal revealed in its reporting on uh, the Haugen documents. I don't know if you can you can speak to this since, of course, you're only on the Meta Oversight Board, not the Every Technology Platform Oversight Board. Uh, but I am curious for your perspective there. I think it's a really important area to probe. I mean, we're learning something from these Twitter revelations about the interplay between political campaigns and that platform. You know, a company like Meta deals intensively with governments all over the world. You know, on the one hand, they have to operate uh, at the permission with the permission of governments in the jurisdictions where they are active. If they don't follow the law, they will be shut down or kicked out. And we understand that. But there also is a, a level of interplay between these companies and governments that I think is not uh, very visible and not that well understood. It's something that we have an interest in as an oversight board that we want to be able to look at more closely. I think on the broader question of balancing sort of business and human rights considerations, you know, we turn to, for example, the UN guiding principles on business and human rights as one benchmark. And we say in the cross-check opinion, we talk in our recommendations about content that should be given uh, an extra level of protection against mistakes. Uh, That's sort of content that has extra value from a human rights perspective. Uh, We talk about content that can be afforded such extra protection. And that's where we do afford leeway for Facebook's identity as a private company, the fact that they have business interests, that their partners, their advertisers, the uh, sources of their revenue are going to enjoy certain privileges on the platform. And I don't think, uh, you know, we can declare that's out of bounds or impermissible. But then we also designate some categories of users that really shouldn't be given this extra level of protection, particularly those that uh, have a track record of abusing it. And so I think if you think about it, systematically in that way, it's it's possible to conceive of a system that both upholds human rights obligations, uh, but also meets the company's business interests. I want to dig in a little bit to this human rights question. And, and I, I have two questions in particular for you. The, the first is kind of a, a basic question of why are we using or why is the board using international human rights as the relevant framework here? given that Meta is a a private company and international law is generally, uh, not exclusively, but generally understood to apply to to states. And and the second question is, you know, without necessarily getting into a whole discussion of the contours of international human rights law, which which are vast, what are the core features that the board wants Meta to focus on the most? And that, I guess, in this case, are are most threatened by how Meta has been operating CrossCheck. Sure. You know, in terms of why it is that the company and the board turned to international human rights law uh, as a benchmark, you know, there has been a recognition over time that companies are subject to certain human rights requirements. This is articulated in these UN guiding principles that are a very frequently referenced benchmark for us in our work. And so there is a predicate uh, for applying aspects of human rights law and norms to the private sector. And when it came to the oversight board, I would say, look, there needed to be some source of authority outside of Meta's own prerogatives and stated principles that we would turn to in order to adjudicate these cases. And there are a number of scholars, uh, people like former Special Rapporteur on Free Expression, David Kay, who argued that international human rights law could be usefully applied for this purpose. And one of the great advantages of it, of course, is that it's international. It's universal. Uh, And so rather than trying to apply First Amendment jurisprudence, for example, uh, to this global platform, you know, there's at least some legitimacy in the idea that these are universal precepts. When it comes to how we apply international human rights law to evaluate the decisions of a company like Meta, I'd say that there's a, a three part test that is the most frequently invoked aspect of international human rights law. It's sort of the legality 
legitimacy and necessity slash proportionality uh, analysis. And we apply it when we're looking at the ways in which the company constrains free expression. And so the legality prong is about whether the rules it's using to constrain expression are clearly and accessibly communicated. And so we called out the opacity of cross-check under that criteria. Uh, and we said, look, this is not a legal system in the sense of being put forward publicly so people can understand what the rules are and aren't. Then we anal analyzed it under the legitimate aim prong of that three-part analysis to determine whether the restrictions that they have in place are kind of narrowly tailored to the objectives uh, that are permissible under international law. There are certain bases upon which free expression rights can be curtailed, including respecting the rights of others, protecting against national security, public order, and public health. And we found that absent any mechanisms for measuring how cross-check was work, it was really impossible to determine that the aims were legitimate and that there's a lot of reason to judge that, in fact, kind of business imperatives were what are dictating these particular constraints on expression. And then there's a the question of necessity and proportionality and whether particular restrictions on expression are the least intrusive ways to meet the legitimate aim in question. And, and here again, uh, you know, we raised real doubts about whether cross-check can possibly pass that test, given the lack of clear criteria about who is eligible for the system, uh, the disparate benefits from the system, the fact that, uh, you know, those who are more marginalized and discriminated against are really not the most prominent beneficiaries here. So let's talk in a little more depth about the board's recommendations for Meta on this. You have some, it's, pre, it's pretty detailed, I have to say. You have almost uh, 10 pages. There, there's a chart. You have a, a very detailed walkthrough of proposals for what steps Meta should take to improve on those various human rights metrics that you just laid out. I don't want to make you go uh, line by line through the entire chart, but I am curious if you could just set out for our listeners uh, sort of main takeaways on what you think Meta should do. Yeah, sure. Look, I'd say what we try to set out is how a mistake prevention system could work in a way that would be consistent with Meta's own objectives and with international human rights law. And so we go through who should be eligible for such a system, who should be ineligible for such a system. We set out the idea that a system like this should operate as a kind of a bargain between these high priority users and the platform. And if, that if people are given greater leeway to express themselves, if they run a lesser risk of having their content taken down from the platform, that that should be in return for understanding what the platform rules are and for obeying them and abiding kind of lawfully as, as that concept might be applied uh, in meta. And so the idea that those who are in the system, the entity-based system should know that they're in it, they should know what the rules are, they should commit themselves to following those rules, if they uh, show themselves to be incapable of adhering to those rules, they should be kicked out of the system because uh, the risk of uh, content of theirs being harmful and remaining on the platform during its peak period of virality uh, is too high. So that's one important aspect we talk about. We talk about this issue of the backlog and the fact that human rights oriented content needs to be prioritized. It shouldn't be put in competition with or, or put behind in the queue, uh, that content that uh, originates from business partners and is subject to the system in order to protect against escalation risk. We talk about the disparities in terms of moderation resource and uh, lack of translation and expertise uh, accessible for certain regions of the world. Uh, in order to be able to really fully access the benefits of a system like this. Uh, we talk about the need for clear criteria in terms of who's eligible for the system and, and why, and a channel whereby those who believe that they should be included in the system have an opportunity to apply and put forward their case. So, you know, we that, that the approach we've taken essentially is to sort of set out not exactly how cross-check should be 
modified, but rather how a mistake prevention system could work in ways that adhere to both Meta's principles and international human rights law. So before we close out this conversation, I, I want to look forward and ask how optimistic you are and maybe other colleagues on the board are about whether or not Meta will actually be willing to, or even if it's willing to, to be able to reform this system along the lines that you recommend? Yeah. Look, I think we're pretty realistic as a board about kind of the art of the possible with a company as large as Meta. You know, I would say it is our hope. We feel like we have sounded an alarm here about uh, a whole series of failings in this system. And I do hope that we see substantial overhaul. Uh, You know, maybe it's not going to look exactly the way we say it should look. Maybe not all of our recommendations are going to be implemented, but I hope there is a recognition that the current system really is falling short, uh, even of Meta's own commitments. And I think the way that they deal with these recommendations, how seriously they take them. Uh, you know, we often hear in response to our recommendations, basically the company will say, you know, kind of we're already doing that uh, and that they don't provide necessarily the proof and ver- ability for us to verify whether that's true. It's just sort of a bald assertion. So I hope that's not what we get back here. I think this opinion is going to be an important test of the Uh, value of the board about whether this check that we provide, even with its constraints, whether it's really meaningful. And so uh, I think the next 90 days during which uh, Meta has an opportunity to analyze and respond to the opinion is pretty crucial and could end up being quite fateful in terms of the the direction of, of what I've always viewed as an experiment, you know, in the form of this board. Well, that's quite a a cliffhanger to end things on. We'll keep an eye on how things shake out over the next 90 days. Suzanne, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, a Lawfare podcast series on the online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed and in our separate Arbiters of Truth podcast feed. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always... Thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.